0: You know, in John chapter 8, as we open it up, it contains one of the most profound stories of all of Jesus' ministry, and it started, and we've been talking about the past few weeks, Jesus has been combating these Jewish leaders and Pharisees, and these Jewish leaders and Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in a compromising position so that they can arrest him, and so they wanted to do their best to see him teaching something that was contrary to the law. And so they decided the way that we're going to do this now is we're going to highlight someone else's sin and we're going to see if he upholds the law in their life and give them what the necessary punishment is. And so I want to dive in right away today because we have a lot to unpack from this story. John chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to be reading through verse 11. For you at home or if you're reading electronically, I read out of the New Living Translation. Let's begin. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again in the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. "Teacher," they said, to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Everyone say finger, even if you're at home. All right, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away, one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this story. Lord, what it means to us. Because God, we can identify with this woman. Each and every one of us is prone to sin. And so God, I pray that you will open up our eyes to God who we are. And Lord, the freedom that you can bring if we choose to follow your son. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's many things we can unpack in this story, and I'm sure you guys have heard this sermon at least a dozen times. And so you're wondering, well, what what aspect can pastor bring today? And I want to look at Jesus' initial response to these men. His initial response was to bend down and start riding in the dirt with his finger. And it was almost to the point where, like, they were a little bit being ignored. But he's writing in the dirt with his finger, and we have no idea what Jesus wrote. But something I noticed that I have overlooked in the past is all the times in Scripture in which God wrote with his own hand. And so what we're going to do is today, we're going to talk about the three times God wrote with His own finger in Scripture. So the three times we've seen God write with His own finger. The first time is the law. You know... uh, Since the beginning of creation, there was clearly a need for the law. And I want to read for you Exodus chapter 31 verse 18. It says, When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave him two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. You know, at the time, men and Women were told what was right and what was wrong by the ruler that was reigning over them. Now there was, there was moral subjectivity. And so there, there, was, there was some basic principles they had for their life. But there was nothing that was passed down from God other than what he had verbally spoke to Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that was what people clung to. So as this, these tablets were written, people needed to hear what God's standards were for them. So here God was using his servant Moses. He's, I'm going to write these laws with my finger. And then Moses, who witnessed the inscription of those laws by the very finger of God, then in turn delivered the message to the people. It came directly from God. It wasn't from Moses. So these parameters of what to follow, they were set by God, not by man, which is how it needed to be in order to set a standard of living. Now, I don't know what your feeling is about the law, and I know that Christians have a different take on the law because of what Jesus Christ brings, but I'm going to tell you that we need the law, and the law makes us conscious of sin. It seems easy for us to think we don't need the law because I don't need to abide by the law because I am under the new covenant, which is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Just because Jesus came into the world doesn't change God's moral standard for our lives. Amen? It doesn't change God's moral standard. In fact, I believe as Christ expresses in the Sermon on the Mount our standards become even higher. And so Jesus Christ is calling us to a deeper purpose in God. See, in the law, there was retribution for our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us not to repay evil for evil. In fact, pray for those who persecute you. You see, Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to perfect it. And so you might be sitting at home, and you might be hearing me out and saying, "So, so then, Pastor, what is our approach? What is our approach to the law?" And the the first the first is obvious that God's expectation is for us to abide by His law, but He also expects us to also abide by the laws of the land. Do I have an amen there? See, that second part is a little bit more difficult. You hear that, and you're like, ah but I don't like all the laws of my land. But in today's world, if we start from the very beginning, in today's world, even in the realm of the church, the moral line on on where many churches are finding things acceptable is moving. I don't know if you've noticed. It's moving. And that is not what is stated in Scripture. Scripture. So the first and most important rule that I want to establish for us in saying that God's law applies to me is that God's word is perfect. It's one of the most important things we can establish. God's word is perfect. Listen to Psalm 1830. It says, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. In Psalm nineteen seven. It says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. You know, when I was young, my parents had rules. And some of the rules I felt were stupid. And so I could break those rules in my mind because they didn't make sense. And what I didn't realize is they set those rules in place for my own good And to teach me the way I ought to go, but I looked at that and like, you know, in my mind, that's negotiable. Well, obviously, there was a very good reason they set that standard in their home, and for them, it wasn't negotiable. So if I broke that, I became what? Disobedient, right? I became disobedient to my parents, now, what we read in Scripture is God's instruction for how we, are ought, to, we ought to live. So, what we read in Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by Him, and penned by man. So, our approach is to accept and believe all of it. Because if you want to believe just part of the Word, Think about this. If you want to believe just part of the word, that is faulty thinking because it's clear that then we have parts that come to question. And I'm telling you that if you disciple anyone, if you bring up anyone under your tutelage, including your kids, if you say, well, son, I like all of what the Bible says except for this part. We stay away from that part. We don't believe in that part. Now, your son could read that and say, you know what? If he's willing to question that, well, I... I question his belief in this. And then you see the spiral effect that starts to occur that if if we open to question what God has inspired, what God has instructed us in, then it is going to have a society that's not truly worshiping the one true God. The second thing that we need to adhere to understanding in approach to God's laws, that God does not change. He does not change. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, and I do not change. That is why your descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. And so here, here what is being stated, I, I, I like to give the context of each passage that I read, and here it was being illustrated that Jacob's descendants gave God many reasons to destroy them. And God did that with Edom and his descendants, but God remembered his promise to Jacob. And so God honored it. That is why it is so important for you and I to hold on to the promises of God, because he will remain faithful in everything that he has promised. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You cannot look at Jesus' instruction as something that is new to who God is instead Jesus was a so we understand that Jesus was a part of God from the beginning and so Jesus teachings now that we're reading and are being instructed to these people for the first time even though it might be new, a new revelation to mankind this is who God has always been so God didn't change but God further revealed himself to mankind so his teachings his principles and the law, they don't change. No matter what changes in the realm of the church, locally or culturally, I'm telling you, Jesus remains the same. He remains the same. That is why, as we talked about last week, about knowing the word of God for yourself and it being so important that you actually go home and you can trust the words I'm saying because you know I'm using the scripture to back it up, but I'm telling you to verify You can trust, but you verify. You need to know Scripture. And you need to know the law well enough to recognize when it is not being followed. Especially by those who claim to be believers. I heard this story about ten years ago. It was a pastor in the Congo. And this pastor, his church was growing and things were, things were happening. Things were beginning to click. And he had many converts to Christ. And coincidentally, he started receiving a lot of acclamation for the things that he was doing. And so he was receiving acclamation and notoriety. And as you can imagine with many churches, all the people in the church, they became his followers. Well, the danger with that is if you don't point to Christ, as his head started to get a little puffed up and he had a little bit of pride to him and he was receiving a lot of the honor for the things that were going on and then he started getting a little what I call extra-biblical. And then beyond that, he started to introduce sin into his life and one of the things that he did was for new converts, he told the young ladies in the church that if they wanted to get closer to Christ, they needed to sleep with him. And so he was taking all these girls out and he was sleeping with them as soon as they got converted to Christ. And the scary part is he did this for about 10 years. Now, if you've got a good leadership structure in your church, or if you have a good accountability around you, those things usually get nipped in the bud long before something like that occurs. But I am telling you, church, that is why it is important for us to know the Word of God, amen? To know the law, know Scripture and what it says, and know God's promises to us. But if you choose to follow the culture... You're going to find that there's always a shift in the rules. There's always something new transforming and developing. And there's going to be different expectations. And that line that is in the sand, it's constantly moving. It's trying to pigeonhole you into the direction the culture is going. And it's always going to change. You're never going to find yourself at a place where you completely know or understand the rules. With God, that line never moves. That line never moves. You know exactly who he is, as stated in his word. The next thing, and I told you I'd eventually get to it, is by... We need to follow the law of the land. You know in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 and 2. It says everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And they will be punished. Now. Some of you are hearing this and you're saying, but pastor, have you met the people that are in authority over us? They're not good, they're not godly people, and I am telling you, I hear you. I understand, and obviously we are not expected as believers to obey the law of the land if it is contrary to God's law, but we do have a subjection underneath their authority. And it is clear that no matter what era or country we belong to, that in our economic or political worldview, we are to submit to whoever our governing authority is. You guys hearing me on this? So although social and economic status may seem important to us in regards to eternity and portraying the image of Christ in our lives, it pales in comparison. And so it is important for us to honor God even in that. Jamie, how many people did we lose online right after I said that? I'm joking. The next time we see the finger of God used is in judgment. You know, and in judgment, it's because there is penalty for sin. And there was, there's was a story of a king named Belshazzar, and in the book of Daniel chapter 5, there was a king that followed Nebuchadnezzar, and his name was Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, and Belshazzar let everyone who was around him drink from the gold and silver cups that they seized from that temple. While they were using these cups from the temple, and they were, they were praising other idols, and they, they were getting drunk, God used his finger. And I want to read for you Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, and then we're going to skip on to Daniel 5, 25 through 28. It says, Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand riding on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave away beneath him. Daniel 5, 25 through 28, it says, this is the message that was written. Many, many, tekel and persin. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Since God created man, there has been penalty for disobedience. And the application of that penalty is his judgment, and God does not take disobedience lightly. I went to a church party once, and and there was a lot of people gathered around, and this one family was there, and they had a kid there that was about six years old. And this child was going up to almost everyone in the party and kicking at their legs and hitting them, thinking it's funny and running off and doing it to someone else. And this was happening repeatedly over and over and over again. And I saw the parent go, no, honey, don't do that. No, don't do that. And the child kept repeating to do it again and again. And no, 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 please stop, please stop. Eventually this parent got so frustrated. I'm not kidding you. They went to my wife and said, I can't do anything with her. Could you discipline her for me? Now it was evident to Wendy to say, the reason she is not responding to you is because there's no ramifications for your discipline, right? Right? But the parent was focusing on trying to develop the behaviors with some kind of reason with someone who was absolutely unreasonable. With Belshazzar, his approach was a complete mockery of the Hebrew God. And so God is seeing this, and, and as he wasn't about to use his finger as just an empty threat to Belshazzar, he's going to write something, it's going to be sure. And so God is displaying to him his omnipotence, and he is going to honor his word because he's seen what is going on. So if we accept that God is going to be faithful and he's not going to change, then we need to trust he will also follow through on his judgment toward mankind. You and I, we will face judgment. There are many people that you and I know where they have gotten away with terrible things and we think, when will they get what they deserve? The truth is, with God, all of humanity will. Where there are many who don't like the message of judgment, but here's the thing. We point to verses like Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Hey, pastor, this is my life verse, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. I absolutely love it. It says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. So guess what? I'm going to live in a judgment-free world and I am going to be at peace with everybody. But we also need the context of Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. It says, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. But if you take into our, our view and understanding of judgment verses like 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 and 1 Thessalonians 5 14 it tells us about bringing judgment to fellow believers' lives. Now the reality is we should not be critical of each other without affection for one another. Do you guys understand the difference? And how to deliver that in love when it comes to fellow Christians We can't treat each other as unbelievers, but everyone who has chose to align ourselves with Jesus Christ, and we are all a work in progress, amen? We're all a work in progress. Our greatest warning is that we're not perfect, and God is. So likewise, God's judgment is perfect, and ours is not. That's the true warning, But you and I, not being perfect, creates a huge problem. Because that means every one of us has failed. And everyone is deserving of God's judgment. We cannot escape the truth that you and I, we have failed God's standards and expectations. We have. So if we follow God's word, like Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death, we know that we are bound to death in a life of sin because of our disobedience, which speaks to this desperate need that we have for humanity to be rescued from this penalty because none of us have lived up to it. None of us have lived up to those expectations. That's where Jesus Christ comes in. And our third time, the finger of God is used. And he uses it for mercy and forgiveness. You know, going back to our main text this morning, the woman in the story, she was guilty. She was guilty, dead to rights. She, she was caught in the act. Now, on the surface, there are many parts of this story that are called into question, like, hey, where's the guy in this, Right? Because it wasn't just, it, it, we, we know that there's another guilty party because it takes two to commit adultery. But the reality is, Jesus already looked past that. And Jesus saw a greater issue with the hearts of these, of these Jewish leaders and the Pharisees that had brought her there, uh, rather than just the woman that was caught in the act. Now, by Old Testament law, he had every right to stone her. The same line I'm telling you today is not abolished. The difference is Jesus makes it perfect. Okay? Jesus makes it perfect. You see, they knew the law. They had their understanding of judgment, and they were trying to apply it right there. Yet, they had taken this unloving, superior approach to penalizing the immoral actions of people. And at the same time, they were neglecting the truth that they're not perfect. So Jesus stoops down, and he starts riding in the sand. And again, we have no idea what he wrote, but if we study what he says, it is clear that he is drawing attention to the truth that there is less of a difference between them and this woman than what they are leading to believe. Listen to John 8, 7 through 9 again. It says, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. One by one, each man was defeated by the words of Jesus. One by one, they dropped their stones, and they left. So now you have Jesus and her standing there. And now we've just seen the finger of God used for mercy and forgiveness. By Jesus' words of not condemning her, it seems seems very clear to me, even though it's stated, that she believed and trusted in Jesus at that moment. Now for the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and the woman caught in that, they all needed to recognize the only way to honor God would take mercy and forgiveness that they could not acquire on their own. This is the grace that you and I need. This is the grace we need. This last evidence of the finger of God shows that his answer to the law, his answer to his judgment, is mercy and forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. So where some people might look and say, this God, he's a strict God. He's judgmental. He's vengeful. But with the offering of Jesus Christ for our sins, God is a loving, merciful, gracious God. Forgiving God. Now this doesn't make you and I exempt from the law. But it's God's fulfillment to help us abide by it. God saw a need. He saw a need in our lives. And so he freely gave his son in meeting that need. The reality is this three-step process that we're talking about this morning, the law, the judgment, and then forgiveness, it needs to be seen in that order. It needed to take place in that order. We need to see that on our own, we are disobedient, we are unloving, and we're ignorant to the ways of God. But Christ reveals to us that through Him, we can be forgiven and we can follow a new path. But in order to achieve that, our hearts need to be aligned with Him. And then we find purpose in following him. You and I cannot neglect what Jesus Christ has done because it is only because of Christ. It is only because, as Doug mentioned, the blood of Christ that I have a right to stand before God. You that are at home, those of you here, Following Jesus Christ is the perfect example of how we ought to live. There was no greater example. There is no other example worth following. And we know it's pleasing to him. It's pleasing to God. So for you and I, I, what I encourage you to do today, take hold of Jesus. Embrace God as the God who uses his finger to make law. He uses his finger to give judgment, but also he uses it for mercy and forgiveness. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. And the reason that is, is because you and I needed that perfect sacrifice in order that one day we can be standing before the throne of God and God looks upon us and he sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, covering our lives and he can look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the opportunity that you have today. Choose to believe in Jesus Follow what he says as he told the woman. Go and sin no more. We know that's an impossible task too. But that's the goal he has set before us. And so we don't want to neglect or belittle grace that has been offered to us and respect that God has now called us to follow him. And so in our lives, things need to change. And I don't know about you, but I am a very flawed individual. And that is why I am keeping my eyes on Jesus Christ and looking to Him as the standard for my life that I might change and become more like Him. So if you're at home today, or if you're here in our audience I encourage you to reflect on your position in life and if you're following Jesus Christ. And I want to open up the door that you could follow him today. It can start with a simple prayer. And we're going to pray that now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son. Lord, for you sending him to this earth to redeem me of my sins. Lord, he lived a perfect life. There is no other sacrifice that could work for my life but Jesus. And now we can stand here today as free men and women because of what you accomplished through your son. God, we thank you for his life. And Lord, as we move forward, we are choosing to follow him, to go and sin no more. So, God, lead and guide. Lord, align our, our hearts with not just freedom, but with purpose. I thank you, God, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.